digital PR podcast. So my name is Jess Hawkes. Um, for those of you that um, have the unfortunate circumstance of knowing me already, will know that I am a digital PR specialist at Impression, um, all-round language nerd, and I have quite a lot of opinions. But thankfully, I'm also doing the editing, so if I say anything bad, then it won't be included. Um, and my guest today is lovely Laura Hampton. Um, she is an SEO veteran here at Impression um, and all-round badass. Consequentially, she's also my boss um, as the head of digital PR here at Impression, so I'm just going to let her introduce herself. My name is Laura. I've been head of digital PR at Impression for the last couple of years. Um, prior to that, as Jess mentioned, I was full-on in the world of SEO, working both in-house brand side um, and also agency side at a couple of different agencies. So, yeah, that's me. Okay, cool. So before we jump in, let's actually talk about why we started this. I want to give a little bit of context behind the whole thing. Um, So, I mean, why did we start this? I mean, there are a lot of opinions on the internet, aren't there? Like, um, and (laughs) I wanted mine to be there with them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. I just think we're at this nice point in the industry where... um, we're really shaping it, so I sort of ran on about this quite a lot to um, Laura, but I think digital PR at sort of this point in time is quite a young, um, malleable discipline, um, and the people within it, we've got this sort of great ability um, and power to be able to sort of move it in into a shape that we really want. Um, and I think that's quite unique, because not every discipline has that. Um, sometimes, uh, I guess historically, there's misconceptions about an industry, or it's such a large industry that there's split opinions, whereas actually sort of the community within it is, is helping to shape it. And I think that's quite a nice thing. Um, so I want to hear the voices and opinions. I mean, there's a lot of people putting their opin- opinions out. Um, Twitter is sort of full of this digital PR community. Um, and it feels like sometimes it's some people shouting a little bit louder than others. Um, but I know that the community is wider and more diverse than that. So that's what this podcast is really all about. Um, and I, d- I mean, I don't want one or two people to be representative or the role model in an industry. I want to be able to let everyone have their say. Um, so the way that uh, the format this is going to take is we're going to um, discuss a couple of campaigns that we've seen and liked. We also are having what I affectionately call the, ro- the rowdy roundup, where we're going to talk about anything which has been going on in the industry um, over the last couple of weeks, um, any Twitter beef we've seen. And then we'll get on to sort of the, the main chunk of the podcast, which will be the main topic. Um, so this uh, month we're talking about quite a broad topic, which will be this sort of shape and direction of the digital PR industry, which is um, kind of feeds into what I was saying earlier about sort of we we are changing it. So I I want to discuss with Laura, who's been in the industry for many years and has sort of been one of them pioneering voices in actually changing the industry, so what she actually thinks about it. Um, So before before we begin and get into sort of the campaigns, let's talk about the Rousey Roundup. (laughs) Rousey Roundup, Rousey Roundup, Rousey Roundup. Cool, so what's been going on in the industry this week? Laura, have you seen anything exciting which has been kicking off that you'd like to discuss? Well, Jess, um, (laughs) I did see that Buzzstream have added emojis. So you can now do outreach. (laughs) You can now do outreach through Buzzstream, including emojis, which is something that I am I am excited to learn more about. I think coming from an SEO background, I'm very much driven by data rather than opinion. I know there's a lot of opinions out there about whether emojis in an outreach email are appropriate, if they add personality, if they add humor, if they get better engagement rates. Um, And the reality is I don't know because the only way that we've been previously able to use emojis in our outreach is by doing it through our actual email um, platform like Gmail or whatever you're using. Whereas now having that ability in Buzzstream, hopefully as a team, we'll be able to do a bit of experimenting. We can see if we get better open rates when there's an emoji in the subject line or or whatever. I think it's going to open the doors to a bit more experimentation around something previously very opinion driven. I think I I saw it a conference one of the journalists was saying using emo using emojis is cool it get grabs the attention but then it's i just feel like it's going to become oversaturated because then everyone's going to be using emojis and then it's <laughs> going to be harder for them to actually distinguish which ones are a good story because it's like a headline just full of emojis i think it's interesting looking at people's different styles as well because for me the biggest thing in an outreach email is that you need to be authentic it needs to be your yeah, personality that's yeah, coming across yeah. and I know you and I were having a conversation yesterday about the use of things like, how are you? Or hope you're well at the beginning of an email. And I think 
that's just quite a personal thing and um, as long as you're being authentic then I, I think that's how you can kind of start to build a rapport you can build relationships you can get people engaged whether it will convince people to open your email in the, email in the first place I don't know but yeah. yeah having that functionality in BuzzStream means we can experiment at least yeah I guess so I think I'm still a bit old school in that and I always bang on about this that if you've got a good story that's the only real way that you're going to get a journalist to feature it and even if they open it doesn't mean if you've still not got a strong like narrative they probably wouldn't feature it anyway so what's your top tip for a subject line then what gets people Ooh, to open your emails hang on I'm meant to be interviewing you <laughs> I'm the boss <laughs> I don't know. There are ways that you... I mean, you've got to lead with the strongest story, but it's all about relevancy, I think. There's no point just going out with a blanket email um, to all different um, realms of journalists um, because there is a way that you can make a headline more bespoke for whichever journalist is featuring it. So um, even between... if you're Even if you're going to nationals, you know, the, the nationals vary hugely. Um, so the people that you're going to from the guardian is going to have a completely different headline to one of the tabloids so it is just um altering it i think and being as bespoke as possible so you would change your subject line to suit the headline and the tone and language of that publication absolutely yeah definitely (laughs) anything else you've seen going on um i've been following a lot of stuff from at info is beautiful on twitter information is beautiful they've been doing some wicked stuff recently with mapping out data um which i always just think is really interesting and i know that we impression and actually across the digital PR industry do quite a lot of of mapping or comparing different statistics to one another um and yeah I think they've been really good recently especially with their visualizations through Twitter so check them out at info beautiful I think I'm just really I'm really into how we visualize things as much as um kind of the data sources that we utilize and there's been quite a lot um and if we come back to talk about campaigns that I've enjoyed which I believe we will then I'm going to talk quite a lot about campaigns from Digital Loft. Mm. Um, they're an agency that I've followed for a long time, and I think something that they've been doing especially well recently is using different sources of data and combining them in a way that makes them newsworthy. So whether that's a different way of visualising discrepancies between data or um, taking data points, like they did for a recent campaign, they were able to show the most stressful tube lines in London. Yeah, that was um, cool. A lot of data points that you wouldn't typically put together to, to form the idea of stress, but they've done that to come up with this really newsworthy headline. So um, yeah, I'm just really, really nerding over data at the moment. <laughs> I saw, um, I saw that the Outreach Conference has released their list of speakers as well, so that's exciting. Um, it'd be really good to go down there and check out those guys. It's been, um, I've been to a couple of Outreach Conferences in the past. One of them was really good. Um, one of them I didn't enjoy quite as much, so I'm excited to see uh, yeah, how this one goes. What do goes. you think changed? What was the difference? I found the first one that I went to, so a couple of years ago, I found it to just be much more practical um, and the tips to be much more kind of applicable, uh, whereas the second one I felt like it was a bit more of a showcase of stuff that people had done, which is always nice, but there are so many channels Mm -hmm. now for us to see kind of campaigns that are working really well, whether that's kind of Twitter, and um, I actually really like uh, digital PR examples, I think that's quite good for following stuff, but also we've got Pinterest boards in-house that we use, we've got um, internally we share a lot of campaigns, so I think I have plenty of ways of getting hold of campaigns that Mm. I can be inspired by, what I really want from a conference is people to tell me how they did them and to give me insight into the (laughs) workings behind them. What do you think of like journalist panels, because I know that's quite divisive? I struggle with journalist panels, um, purely because... I think sometimes we're at risk of reducing our discipline down too much. So we talk about, and we we do it in SEO, we do it in broader marketing as well, we'll talk about users rather than individual people. And we seem to do the same in PR. We talk about journalists and completely Mm -hmm. forget the fact that those are human beings and that they've all got different opinions as much as we do. So you you can sit and watch a journalist panel and have them all say, you know, I only want you to email me twice at the most. Yeah. You can then take that away with you and apply that to your own work and actually miss a lot of opportunities because there are other journalists who are happy to be emailed three or four times. So I think it's got to be taken with a pinch of salt. Um, but then I also do believe that it's important to understand our audience, which as PRs is journalists. So yeah. the more you can learn from journalists through whatever channels, the better. 
sometimes it's quite funny as well because there'll be two journalists on a panel and they'll be saying completely contradictory things and you're just sat there as a PR like, okay, so what do I take away from this? I just don't know what to do. There's also times when they say things that you know not to be true. So um, I can think of one specific example that happened at Outreach Conference um, a year or so ago where one journalist was talking about how they never make people pay for coverage, but we also had seen an email where they had responded saying they always make people pay for coverage. So I think if if the journalists that are on the panels are willing to be open and transparent with us, it's a really valid source of information and should be taken seriously. If it's not at that kind of quality or if they're hiding stuff or if they feel they've got yeah. to say stuff, it's less useful. Yeah, so there's been quite a lot of stuff kicking off um, this week. One thing that was also raised, um, someone was looking at someone else's campaign and um, there was certain questions raised about it um what do you think about sort of looking at each other's campaigns in the industry do you do you agree with it oh 100 yeah i am i am very much so i'm very much an advocate for sharing things and as you mentioned at the beginning i also believe that digital pr is at the very early stages of its evolution and we as kind of the team at Impression and as kind of people in digital PR across the country and also, you know, SEOs, traditional PRs, everyone who feeds into that discipline, we have a real opportunity to evolve it in the way that we see fit. And Mm. that for me makes it a very exciting industry. It also, to an extent, makes it a less competitive industry because I know that people will choose to work with us over somebody else because they like our approach and our approach might be very different to other people. And, you know, conversely, other people might choose other agencies because they prefer yeah. their way of doing things. So, um, yeah, I think I think sharing is, is really good. I've actually um, got quite a good, strong network with a number of PR managers from different agencies across the country. Yeah. And I get so much value out of just chatting to them about... You go to Nando's, don't you? We go to Nando's. We go and eat <laughs> chicken and talk about links. It's the dream. Um, but I, I just think we, sh- we should be inspired by one another. And... Um, something that I really enjoy doing um, with you guys here in the team is when we we share campaigns with one another and we'll celebrate the things that we really enjoy and we'll rip mm-hmm. apart the things that we would have done differently ourselves or the things that we don't like. So for me, it's about learning all the time. And if you never look at what other people in your industry are doing, you've got a really blinkered view of what you think the industry needs to look like. And I don't think that's fair. I think at the moment, yeah. it's the early stages of its evolution. Let's be open to learning as much from each other yeah, as possible. Definitely. I, I agree with you. And I, personally, I think it's a compliment. If someone's mining the back profile of one of my campaigns, I'd be like, yeah, go ahead, see how great I am. Absolute love week. <laughs> um, cool, that feeds nicely into our next feature. When the pimp's in the crib, ma. DR, off it like it's hot. One campaign, one singular campaign that we've seen and we've liked recently and why. I do have an impression campaign that I want to celebrate. However, I also have a couple of others from other agencies that (laughs) I've enjoyed. So um, the one that I really wanted to celebrate firstly from impression itself was um, specifically from Damien, uh, Damien Summers, who's in the impression PR team. And um, he put together a campaign which actually had two distinct phases to it, which I really enjoyed. I know there's been various people at conferences over the years who've talked about Um, kind of evergreen PR content and this idea of being able to bring content back out to re-pitch it again when it becomes topically relevant. So this was a campaign where Damien had a look at all of the songs that were on Spotify within um, Lullaby's lists. So he uh, was able to go through and with the help of some of our paid media team, he built a script that pulled out some of the common characteristics of those songs. So he was able to find out how many beats per minute they had, what key they were written in um, and lots of stuff like that. And to then work out the formula for the perfect lullaby which he then applied to the UK's um, I think it was like the top 40 or something at the time and worked out which popular songs were most like lullabies and therefore which songs were most likely to get your kids to sleep so it was the the modern day lullabies which um, by itself managed to get quite a bit of coverage I think it was 50 plus um, links in the initial outreach stage Uh, He then went back and redid the campaign for Christmas songs. So he was able to find Christmas lullabies to help your little ones get to sleep while they wait for Santa. Um, Overall, between the two phases of outreach, he picked up 78 bits of coverage, 78 links, um, including features across kind of national publications, but also something that was really important to our client was that it be featured in kids-specific or parenting-specific publications, which it absolutely hit the nail on the head for that as well. Um, I think it could be really challenging when you're working, especially in the kids and parenting sector. Mm. 
you've got to be able to prove your credibility, particularly if you're trying to give advice. You know, people don't want to feature advice for kids if it's not backed by medical yeah. or whatever. So um, for him to be able to, on behalf of an e-commerce store, come up with a campaign that landed in those sorts of publications, I, I just thought it was really impressive. So I wanted to share that what with What a lad. Absolute lad. <laughs> um, I have also really enjoyed, and I mentioned this earlier, I've enjoyed um, a couple of campaigns recently from Digital Loft, so from James Brockbank and his team. I know that they recently brought in Fran Griffin, who um, I actually met at Brighton SEO. I forget the agency she was working with before, but I thought she was absolutely fantastic when she spoke on stage. So it's been really exciting to watch her um, kind of develop into her role. And, and as a team, those guys have put out, um, like I mentioned, quite a few campaigns based around data. Two that I wanted to bring up. So the first one was the Hardest Working Musicians. Um, this was for a music production client. And what they did was uh, they looked at various data sources to work out which musicians were working hardest for their money. Um, apparently Ed Sheeran came out number one. I think Billie Eilish was number two. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Um, checking out Ahrefs, that managed to get 31 links. Um, but what I really liked about it, as well as the number of links, is that it was it was quite simple, but it's also absolutely bang-on brand mm. for that client. For a music client to be able to talk about music, that's really exactly what you want. Um, in a similar vein, their campaign around most stressful tube lines, that was done for a meditation client, I believe. Um so the idea of stress and then tying that into meditation, relaxation, nice. again, for me, it's just bang on brand. And whilst that has only got three pieces of coverage at the moment, I do expect that to, to grow. Um, and something that we talk about quite a lot at Impression is this idea of circles of focus. So um, recognising that the topics that you're willing to talk about probably fit into three quite distinct categories with those at the kind of centre of the target being the things most closely related to what you actually sell and then kind of going one or two steps away from that in order to be able to gain mass media attention without appearing salesy. And I think the dream is where you can get mass media attention while speaking yeah. about your core topics and that's what Digital Loft have done especially well I think in recent times. Yeah I like that it, it, I find it frustrating when you see a really cool campaign and it's picked up you know it's got a lot of consumer worth and then it's picked up loads of links and then you look at the client and you're like how what does that even fit, how does that even fit in? Yeah, exactly. And I think there was, um, so I'll, I'll kind of mention them and I'm sure they won't mind, but the guys at iProspect ran a campaign recently where they looked at chocolates and um, I think they were noting the kind of nation's favourite chocolates from a box of Quality oh, yeah, Street. the general which, selection. That was it, the general selection. So cool, no. that was a really cool campaign and I can see how it's a great way of showcasing their ability um, to kind of do something quite cool and it probably kind of landed quite well with their, their prospects and their clients as a showcase piece. But in terms of building their backlink profile as a digital marketing agency, I don't think I quite got how it was going to contribute. And I think as Google continues to evolve in its own understanding of things as well, and especially since the September core algorithm update around EAT, we've really got to use our backlink profiles to communicate our expertise and our authority and trustworthiness and things. And having people talking about you in relation to people's choice of chocolates I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be as beneficial to them as maybe doing you know a white paper about how to do SEO to play devil's like advocate then how's that any different from the Pori Party app that we where we change uh, pictures of Boris Johnson into puppies oh that was because we did that one so <laughs> I, I just much preferred it <laughs> I think um I think it's all got to play part of a wider strategy so for Impression, for example, we've run um, a large number of campaigns over the years where our targets have been digital marketing publications. And um, that's obviously our core area. That's what we want to talk about. And to get links and features in kind of search engine land, search engine journal, um, PPC Hero, all those kinds of places were absolutely our top tier targets. But you've also got to have a nice broad um, set of publications talking about you as well. So I would say that the Boris campaign that we ran it sits on that kind of outside layer and it has to form part of a wider strategy, which for us it does. It probably does for iProspect as well, to be fair. But um, yeah, I just really wanted to celebrate those campaigns that hit the core topics more than anything. Because yeah, I think yeah. that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, cool. Um, they are the campaigns that we've seen in like this week. Um, so without any further ado, let's move on to the main topic discussion of this month's podcast. Um, what is the shape and direction of digital PR? So when I put this together, I made it quite intentionally broad. Um, and it, I think feel like it feeds into what I was saying earlier. Um, what shape is the industry currently taking? Where can we expect it 
to go in 2020? Will it change, evolve, and in what way? And do we see it growing independently, away from, or further with SEO? All of these questions that we hear quite frequently in the industry, and what I'd like to talk with Laura about today. So, um, Laura, I mean, in terms of the shape of digital PR, do you see it um, as separate from SEO at the moment, or is it still quite heavily connected? I think I think we see differences coming up. Actually, I think this year is where we're really at a crossroads in terms of how connected to SEO um, digital PR continues to be. I know certainly for us at Impression, um, digital PR continues to be driven by an SEO goal more than anything. I think... Um, For me, the the difference between traditional PR and digital is that digital is measurable in a way that traditional has always struggled to be. Um, So traditional will use kind of proxies for success, things like Mm -hmm. um, advertising value equivalents or or circulation or or reach. Um, And I think they're very difficult to tangibly prove a return on investment for the client and to, to prove an impact on the bottom line. Whereas digital PR is something that we can tangibly measure and the most clear way of doing that is via SEO. So we know that Google has explicitly stated that when you've got more good quality relevant links coming into your site, you can expect to see the needle move in terms of your ranking positions, which leads to more traffic and revenue. Um, So for us, it it always has come from, from an SEO need more than anything else. With that said, the way that we used to build links, you know, even five years ago, I, I've been working in SEO for about 12 years now because I am probably Shock. the oldest person <laughs> in the entire agency. Um, but <laughs> in the entire industry, there's no one older. Um, but I remember when I used to build links back in the early days, it wasn't through PR techniques. It was through, you know, a broad range of, of other techniques that mm. never even touched on PR. Um, I think the closest we ever got to it was probably the production of infographics. But even that can't masquerade as news. So um, for me, the, the involvement of PR specialists like you, Jess, like the team that we've got here, like those people who are coming up in digital PR, the addition of that skill set means that we've got to recognise that there, there are more benefits to digital PR than just link building. Mm. And I think we're seeing that from um, kind of a lot of the stuff that we talk about internally is about the broader benefits. So yeah. um, if you you know you're going to get links from it, but you're investing more time, more effort into a bigger PR campaign, what are the other benefits you're going to get? And that might be something that's difficult to quantify, like brand, um, but that's still something that we can agree with the client, make sure the messaging is appropriate. It might be things relating to audience building. So we've got tools like Google Analytics, for example, which can give us insight into affinity categories and the broader interests of our audience. If we know that we've got a client who wants to speak more to to parents, for example, we can we can now quantifiably and tangibly judge whether we are hitting that metric. Um, we can look at things like kind of using bigger content marketing pieces to actually gather people's email addresses or remarketing lists or you know there's so there's so many more benefits once you bring in a PR specialist that go beyond links yeah but if we can also tie it into that link requirement tie it into SEO goals and understand how it's helping us to increase our visibility online for me that's the measurable aspect that is so unique and so valuable in digital PR itself do you think it's fair for a digital PR specialist to be judged on organic performance if they're just driving links towards the site? I do to an extent. Um, so we talk a lot about uh, the difference between owned goals and shared goals. So if we play this out, the owned goals that we can be responsible for are the links that we build. So the number of links, the quality of those links, the placement of those links. So um, by placement, I mean both where they are in the page that's linking to us and um, where they're linking to on our site. So we can be strategic and we can be intelligent about how we place those links and how we gain them. We can then also recognize the shared goals with our clients. So I'd say... In my experience, in the vast majority of cases, people aren't paying us to build links. They're paying us because they want to increase their visibility or they want to reach a new audience, whatever it might be. So we have to recognize that we share in those goals with them. Um, And we certainly had, you know, plenty of cases where we've been able to show the impact of us achieving our own goals on the shared goals. But we've also and quite powerfully been able to show where that's not happened so um, to be really transparent we did have a client once where we were smashing it in terms of link building results we were getting so many links coming into the site but that shared goal of traffic and rankings wasn't being achieved Mm -hmm. and that opens a discussion point then you can then talk about well if we're doing our part and we're getting the links 
where is it falling down in terms of your wider SEO strategy? And for that particular client, it was a combination of, of technical issues and some content challenges that, mm-hmm. that once fixed, we're then able to all work together yeah. towards that broader goal. So um, I, I think as as digital PRs, because we are digital PRs, we've got to be able to have those conversations with our clients, but also recognise that as specialists, we can really only be judged on what we directly affect. Yeah, it can be difficult. And each client has completely different expectations as well, don't they? So. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's about setting those expectations with the client because, you know, in many cases, we're working with some huge brands at the moment where they've got massive in-house SEO teams. They've set their strategy. You know, they're not looking for us to come in and say, oh, have you thought about this and that? Because they've already done that. They've put the legwork in. They come to us and they say, look, we just really need some good quality links either to the website site-wide or to this particular page, and we do it. But then we also recognize that there are other clients where, you know, digital PR is, it's really fun. It's, It's kind of the it's arguably the sexy part of digital marketing like people get it people can understand it Um, yeah and people like to invest in it and they can sometimes go straight to digital PR before considering the other aspects of their broader strategy and we've seen that as well haven't we yeah certainly so I think it's it's important that we're rounded marketers um, and that we're judged fairly yeah fair in terms of what what we can expect to see in 2020 then you you hinted that this earlier that this year is going to be there's going to be quite a lot of changes um, what what does that look like to you? So for me, there's a few things. So um, I mentioned this idea of there being a crossroads and, and the main area that I actually see there being a split is not SEO versus digital PR. It's actually digital PR versus traditional PR. Mm. So I've given this a lot of thought, um, especially leading the team here at Impression. I'm, I've got to think, you know, where, where does that line sit? What, what tactics will we not employ? What will we not do? Um, especially as we come up in more and more pitches yeah. where people are saying to us, look guys, we're choosing between you and a traditional agency or we're thinking about moving our traditional PR budget into digital. So what is the difference? And um, we see plenty of you know online-only campaigns where we create an online asset or a tool and that's, that's really easy to see how that's digital PR. Yeah. But then conversely, we see things like, um, like you guys have done some product stuff recently, for example, where we're actually influencing product development as much as we are <laughs> PR. Um, we've seen the there's a big campaign by Misguided where um, they did the product campaign with Rise at Seven where they put a, a jumper on a dog and a jumper oh, yeah, on a person. Yeah. And that for me, again, is, is a much more traditional technique, the whole Christmas tinner thing. Actually, a lot of the stuff that, that Carrie and the team are doing, I would argue, are much more rooted in traditional PR yeah. than they are in digital. Yeah, quite heavy stunt, stunt-worthy campaign. Exactly, and I think something that really brought home for me the fact that we are at a crossroads that was the other day I saw um Will Hobson put out a tweet saying that he was interested in learning more about crisis comms Mm -hmm. which for me is very much embedded in traditional PR practices and that's where that's where I would draw a line for us is that that's not where we would add value um and actually the way that we are defining it impression is that digital PR is measurable PR and if there's any Anywhere that we can drive a measurable game for our clients, regardless of tactic, as long as we can drive a measurable game where we believe that the investment is worthy of that potential return, um, we'll do it. But I think there's a lot of people across the industry um, and also client side, people who will be making decisions where they have to choose between mm-hmm. traditional and digital. And I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation for us to have throughout this year. Yeah. And well, I guess we, we go up against traditional PR agencies quite frequently, don't we, in pictures? We do. And we see, um, we see traditional PR agencies starting to move into digital PR mm-hmm. as well. And they're, they're trying to define what they mean. And um, yeah, I just think it's a really interesting time for everybody. And the other thing that I think is, is going to really affect the industry, um, a couple of other things actually, but one of them is the EAT updates. So this is kind of old news now. Um, But back in September, there was a major core algorithm update um, from Google, which really focused more than any other update before on this idea of expertise, authority and trust. And we've really been working through what that means from a digital PR perspective. Mm. So if you think about how um, Google is now reviewing backlink profiles in terms of how well it communicates those EAT factors, if you are you know let's use an example if you are a digital marketing agency putting out a campaign about chocolates the links you're getting back probably slightly less relevant this, the same for us at impression you know let's use ourselves as well for us doing a campaign um where we Copies. change photos of boris johnson into photos of dogs the coverage that we're getting arguably is going to be less relevant depending on how well we target it but i think 
there's going to be a really big focus, especially for those businesses operating in the your money or your life sector. So we've spoken to quite a few kind of finance businesses, um, insurance companies, medical businesses, health websites, who are really going to need to focus on how they can create that perception of expertise, authority and trust through their link building activity, whether that is campaigns that sit at the core of their circles of focus, right through to kind of a greater investment in thought leadership, Mm -hmm. um, author profiling, kind of growing people as spokespeople, commenting, news jacking, all that kind of thing, I think is going to become much more more sexy again. I think we've almost lost it over 2019. Yeah, I think we got really really shouty about creative campaigns and stunts and that was cool but having that kind of layered approach where you're also picking up the basics of thought leadership of commenting of author profiling I think is going to be even more important do you this think year. that do you think that we've lost it or do you think it's that it's just the people who are doing that are sort of steadily doing it in the background and getting results and not necessarily shouting about it I think both I think um even here at Impression, so I was speaking with one of the team um, last month and he was saying that he had become really excited by campaigns and, you know, you've recognised yourself um, that it's more efficient to get links for someone through a campaign than it is through something like thought leadership placement mm-hmm. or comments. You know, you yeah. can get 50 links off of one campaign where you're only going to get the one from one piece of thought leadership. So I do think that our heads have been turned by those more exciting, creative campaigns um, that's not to say that people haven't been doing it, but it's just my my feeling across the industry is that we've we've started to chase more of the bigger shouty stuff. And this year, especially if you're driven by SEO metrics, we've really got to be willing to operate across that full spectrum of techniques. Yeah, I think that's fair as well. And I, one thing that I was looking at a strategy earlier with um, my colleague Rebecca for a new client, and um, we, we've included both creative campaigns and thought leadership in there. And that's simply because... Like you, were, like you were saying, the creative campaign is great and it's more efficient of resource. We can get make more links, but we can tie in the thought leadership in a far sort of clearer way with the actual client's goals. So um, it's way further down the funnel activity, whereas the big sort of creative campaign is way more loosely related to sort of what they're actually doing. But we know that it's going to have um, sort of, you know, lower resource for higher high rewards so generally I mean it's having that layered approach means that we can sort of hit both of them touch points whilst sort of gaining consistent amount of links yeah for sure and I think it's going to be for me that's much more of a focus for this coming year um especially when we're tying things into SEO than things like the March update which we're expecting where Mm -hmm. Google is changing its its use of the no follow tag you know for me that's something that I'm to be honest I'm really struggling to care (laughs) <laughs> just, just, just because it's it's always it's been there for a long time this um, no follow attribute Google has alluded to the fact that it's going to be introducing a, um, a UGC or a sponsored attribute as well which I think has potentially um, quite a big influence especially on the PR industry and I've actually written a blog post about it so I won't go into it too much now um, but for me how Google views links is kind of, it's always being updated, but something that is so important is that whole EAT focus. And mm-hmm. when we're looking at our clients' backlink profiles, when we're looking at our own backlink profiles, we need to be asking the question of um, not have things been tagged to no follow or UGC or whatever yeah. appropriately. We need to actually look at, does this backlink profile communicate our expertise, authority and trustworthiness? Does it show us to be the best brand to feature at the top of the search results? And um, that's really where we've got to focus on quality as well as quantity moving into 2020. Yeah, fair. What advice would you give someone then who's just joined the industry and they know nothing yet? What would I give them? Get yourself a a broad understanding. Um, So... (laughs) That's so fluffy. (laughs) It's so fluffy. But what I mean by that is... Because the industry is, again, it's at the beginning of its evolution, we're still in the early days of digital PR. Yes, it's been around a few years, but it's still, like you say, you use the word, you use the word malleable, and I think that's a really good one. It's still, we can shape it the way we want to. And having just brought a PR analyst into the team at Impressions, somebody who's got no experience, I very much value the thoughts that she has, the opinions that she has, just from not her very jaded. limited, not yet jaded, not yet influenced, you know, I've been in the industry for a long time, so I might be like, oh yeah, we can't possibly do that because it didn't work last time or whatever, but mm. for, for people like Saffron and people coming into the industry and even for you with, what, eight years experience, like you, 
you want to immerse yourself in as much as possible. And that's why, going back to our conversation earlier, you need to look at your competitors and what they're doing, um, but also understand SEO, um, understand paid media, understand paid social media in particular, understand email marketing, understand content marketing, understand how remarketing tags are working, understand cookie expirations, understand, (laughs) like get yourself as much knowledge as you can. Basically Um, just do everything. Go, yeah. yeah to an extent you know I you know that kind of managing you guys as a team the thing that I value most about all of you and the thing that I always push everyone to value most is the specialist expertise that you bring like nobody can ever devalue what you guys bring to the table in terms of your knowledge of PR in terms of your knowledge of the media you guys all read the news you're all such nerds for press practices like you're so into the impression show again (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's important as digital PR specialists that we be immersed in our discipline but I think if I was just starting out or if I was advising someone who is just starting out I'd say it's such a broad discipline still that you should immerse yourself in as much as possible find your niche and then start to carve out your role accordingly yeah fair what do you predict the industry to look like in 10 years from now then Oh, that's going to be absolutely banging. <laughs> <laughs> what do I predict it'll look like? You'll be an absolute SEO granny by then. Do you know how old I'll be? I'll be 43. That's insane. I don't know if I'll be allowed to work here anymore. <laughs> I think I might be too old. I might have to go in-house. Um, what do I think it'll look like in 10 years? I think I think it's going to change a lot, um, which is a well-fluffy answer to give. But I, I do. I think the amount that it's evolved so far... Um, is huge but I think if we look at it similar to a practice like SEO it kind of reached a status quo in terms of what was best practice and you can pretty much go to any SEO agency and they will say that your your strategy is a combination of technical content and links and and there are things that are kind of embedded and I think similar will will happen for digital PR we will agree that um, link building kind of sits at the core we'll find that there are various techniques and tactics that work for us and certain elements will become embedded But then in the same way that SEO has continued to evolve and to progress down different disciplines, I think that's what's next on the agenda for digital PR. So we're already seeing, you know, some agencies are really emerging as very stunt driven, kind of um, getting, uh, kind of blurring that line between traditional and digital and finding some of those kind of bigger styles of campaigns working really well. We've got others like Digital Loft, I mentioned, super data driven. They're carving out that niche. For us at Impression, I think you guys all as individuals are carving out niches. So I think in 10 years time, it's going to be much bigger. It's going to be much more recognized as something that is not a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think we're gonna face a lot of challenges. So one of the things that plays on my mind a lot um, and that keeps me awake at night, Jess, um, <laughs> is the idea that if we continue to build campaigns onto orphan pages of a website, so anytime that we're putting a campaign directly off the route, so you know, impression.co.uk forward slash amazing campaign here, that for me is something that Google could really easily pick up and say, do you know what guys, anytime there is an influx of a large number of links to an orphan page on a site that plays no role in the wider user journey, we're just gonna devalue it. And it's at that point that we're gonna see a lot of these big sexy campaigns actually lose their value from an SEO perspective. And and that's something that does play on my mind and it's something where I think that Google with the Penguin update kind of came out and it sorted out spammy link practices, but there's, mm. I think there's the potential for Google to come out, and this is gonna be a controversial topic for the podcast, but I think there is potential for Google to come out with some way of at least regulating so that those brands with the biggest budget to spend on PR aren't necessarily the ones who get to the top of the search results. Um, so yeah, that's something we're going to have to face and be more strategic in our approach. Yeah, because how are they going to differentiate it from um, sort of more traditional marketing practices, um, which might have sat on orphan pages like competitions, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. But then we wouldn't expect a competition. You know, if you got um, fifty thousand people to enter your competition because it was featured on ITV one morning, um, and then you wanted to be seen in the search results and see all your keyword rankings going up you can't expect that that's going to happen just from that flash in a pan campaign having kind of taken hold one time and I think the same can be said for a lot of campaigns that we see where they sit directly off the route for me that's a really tangible way of Google kind of seeing it and qualifying it and almost quantifying it and saying that activity is where we're going to have to just draw a line and I'm not saying that is what's going to happen but I think 
as digital PRs, we're going to have to learn to be much more integrated in our approaches. We're going to have to be much savvier to where we're going to add value. And it's not just coming up with great campaigns. It's thinking about where they're going to sit within the site hierarchy, how they're going to influence SEO, how we're going to use them to you know, grow audiences for remarketing, whatever it might be. I think we're going to face we're going to face challenges from, from Google, from our clients, from each other. And I think it's really exciting, actually. Yeah, I mean, one of the nicest things is that we have, we, we have to learn to be adaptive, don't we? Because we're always at the beck and call of Google. So constantly we're on our toes thinking, shit, what are they going to do next? <laughs> uh, which is nice because, you know, it's, it's an exciting discipline, as you say. It, it, mean, it means that we're always, um, you know, we're always being as adaptive as we can to, to suit what, um, what works at the moment. And something else I would, I would like to think could happen and I've I've wanted this to happen since it was released many years ago but Google has held a patent for implied mentions or implied links for a long time now um and is that that rumors or is that true that's true I've shown it to you before (laughs) um it it genuinely exists online if if your plan is and this is the SEO of me saying this if your plan is to house this podcast on a page of the impression website I will put a link (laughs) under the podcast um audio but it has held this patent for a long time for implied links, the idea that you can be um, talked about but not linked to, and that should still hold value. And I think, again, that's where we're blurring the lines between what is today known as digital PR versus traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of complexity around that, especially if, you know, let's say you've you've named your digital marketing agency Impression, and um, that's just a word, and Google's going to struggle to tie together mentions of the word Impression with our agency specifically that's that's a challenge that google has yet to overcome so it couldn't give us the value of that implied mention or that implied link now because it can't unequivocally tie together our brand with that word um but i think moving forward especially with google's investment in rank brain and more recently with the bert um stuff that's been happening around language processing and understanding how language works it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we could get to a point within the next 10 years where google can understand that when you've talked about impression or Mm -hmm. tesco or whatever it it means that that person is talking about your brand and it should hold value it should show google that people are interested in this business and it should rank higher i mean i don't think it's out of the realms of possibility that google can tell the difference between the proper noun and an improper now like I don't think that's very complex considering that they're you know leaders in technology seems mad that they haven't been able to do that yet I guess if you play out the complexity of impression though and without making it the impression show I think it is a it's a challenging brand name for us to have in our industry because an impression is a digital marketing agency but it's also a thing that refers to paid media so you get impression share it's also a word used in google search console to refer to somebody seeing your brand it's also um about branding making the right impression um so you can't even you know taking capitalization of the proper noun does that dictate that it must be about our brand well not necessarily because it's also a term used to describe a trademarked impression share so that would also be capitalized could you have it where it's contextually related to words like digital marketing or, you know, to Jess Hawks or to Laura Hampton. Well, no, not necessarily, because, again, we might be talking about, you know, the impression we're making on the industry. Or I think it's so it's such a complex area. Um, I think people like Dawn Anderson um, have been doing a lot of really great work to kind of educate us as an industry on, on BERT. Um, and I think it's well worth everyone who works in digital PR having at least read Google's original patents around how it passes links and also how it understands um, this idea of implied mentions. So, yeah, I would I would really like to think that that could happen because I think that would be a game changer. Do you think it would make um, our industry easier then? I think it would be... No, no, not easier. I think it would make it fairer. I think when you guys land coverage in national publications and because of policy, those national publications don't link back to you. And it's not just nationals, you know, trade publications, niche Mm -hmm. publications, whatever. But where they are willing to use your content, they are willing to credit you as the source of that content by name. But because of policy, they're not willing to add a link. To me, that doesn't feel right. Um, Mm. and and that's just my opinion I have no data to back it up apart from the fact that this patent has existed for a long time so I'd love to see that change Do you think generally um, the industry is getting harder at the moment then? Mm. I think it's difficult for me to comment on that really Um, it depends what you mean by harder like harder to get results Yeah I think I've seen it chucked around quite a lot on um, 
on social, on um, sort of Twitter, um, and even at conferences, people are saying, you know, because of things like publications having policies where they can't link, um, that the discipline is a lot harder than it was, say, I don't know, even like two, three years ago. Um, journalists are getting increasingly more savvy towards SEO practices, and even if they don't have a policy, just um, out of spite, they're like, I'm just not going to link because <laughs> I know that it's benefiting you in some other way. Um, and they want to hold their own journalistic integrity? Or So no, I, I, I don't actually think it's getting harder from those points of view because I think there are also the opposites to that happening. So for example, um, people having a policy of not linking out might relate specifically to just we won't give you a link for nothing if there's no if there's no reason so if we think of the what a link actually is yes it's a a vote it's a proxy for a vote for your website but it's also a method of a user traveling around the web and it's a method of google's crawlers traveling as well so for a journalist to include a link in their story they are effectively giving their audience a route off their own website and i don't think that I can totally understand why journalists wouldn't do that without good reason. Mm -hmm. So that's where we see a lot of campaigns coming out where a lot of people talking about having the linkable asset. So what's the thing on your website that people would want to come and interact with or would want to see or would want to read for more information? And, you know, that's where I think, and without getting into it too much, but that's where I think things like dream job campaigns work really well Mm -hmm. because you put your terms and conditions on the site. It's where things like product stunts work really well because in order to get the product, you have to come through. So giving people reason to link um, I think is really important and that's where it's just about being savvier but I also think that while journalists are becoming more savvy to SEO practices in terms of giving links to us hopefully they also recognize that externally facing links are a valuable part of their own strategy so if you are a news publication let's say who only ever links internally to its own self as a source mm-hmm that to me doesn't scream of credibility whereas a publication which is willing to link out to credible sources i think you know that's where we're going to see journalists becoming savvier to that and if they are savvy to that they're going to be willing to link out providing you are a credible source of your information at this point in the podcast we um would usually look at um questions that people have put to us on twitter but because it's the first one um i haven't had chance to uh, go to people yet and explain what that's all about and gather the questions so I have actually just gone to the team and got some questions for Laura. So, <laughs> lucky team. her. Um, so, the um, first question that I've got is from uh, our senior technical SEO specialist at Impression, Ed oh, Wilson. Oh, no, I haven't seen and- these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're impressed. Oh, no. Um, so, um, he wants to know um, so what are the sort of biggest things that digital PRs can learn from SEO and vice versa? Oh, Ed, you swine. <laughs> Well, the biggest things that SEOs can learn from digital PR and vice versa. Um, So for me, it's about these owned and shared goals and working together. The biggest thing we need to understand is that um, we do support each other, especially SEO and digital PR. You know, Mm. I think digital PR actually crosses over into lots of different disciplines, but we need to learn how each one can support the other. And for SEOs, understand the specialist skill that digital PR practitioners should bring to the table. So we're really fortunate impression that the people that we've got within our team um, are from traditional PR background, they're from journalism backgrounds, they're from digital PR backgrounds. They really understand the press, the media, they can really get coverage that puts the right messages across. So um, whilst an SEO can kind of quite easily go out and just pick up links off of kind of resource-based link building or broken link building Mm -hmm. or just kind of picking up citations or whatever, if you want somebody who can help you get your messages out to the right places, that's where you need a digital PR specialist. So I think, um, yeah, that's what SEOs can kind of take from digital PRs. On the flip side, then, digital PRs can learn from SEOs how to drive the most measurable and tangible value out of mm-hmm. their campaign. So I know that, you know, we can we can come up with the best campaign idea in the world and it can land in some fantastic publications. Mm-hmm. But in terms of kind of those shared goals or bottom line impact for our client we can get more out of it the more integrated we are with our SEO teams. So get them to audit the backlink profile, get them to talk you through what is needed, which pages we need to be focusing on, what types of topics, what kinds of publications, um, and work with each other. And I think by having that integrated approach, we can all get more out of the work that we're doing. Yeah, and I think it's something that not just us, but at least the industry sometimes are a bit guilty of if we don't talk across teams. And I mean, we've seen people come from more traditional PR backgrounds who've had to learn SEO, and then we've seen... SEOs 
who've never really done much link building just be like oh yeah just get me some links um, so <laughs> I think we've seen it from both sides so yeah definitely um, being integrated is you know quite clearly the best way forward I think definitely but it's also knowing what's relevant and what's not I mean technical SEO specialist probably doesn't need to know the intricacies of the media and vice versa we don't need yeah, to know how sure. to render JavaScript so there's um you know it's it, it's making sure that it's the relevant things I suppose uh, what I would also say on that is is because we and we've already recognized in this conversation that digital PR is in the relatively early stages mm. of its of its maturity whereas SEO has been around for a long time so by definition SEO specialists have been around for longer than digital PR specialists have. And um, if digital PR is being brought in as a way of building links, as a digital PR specialist or as a digital PR agency, we shouldn't just be coming in and going, right, we've got this, we're going to tell you how we're going to build links. Because people have been building links for years before this discipline even existed. And I think that's where we really need to to respect people like like Ed, who has been in the industry a long time. He's, He's been through penguin updates he's been through black hat practices he's seen what works what doesn't um i was speaking to a guy the other day who was involved in the whole interflora sandboxing like there are people who've got so much historical knowledge of how google understands links and i think that is that is a massive area that we as digital prs can learn from like speak to people who've been in the industry a long time and learn from their experience yeah definitely respect the hustle (laughs) <laughs> respect the age <laughs> um, cool so our next um, question comes from Saffron uh, our newest member of the digital PR team how many follow up emails is an acceptable amount do you think I mean we've talked about um, uh, sort of journalists having preferences but what's, what, what do you do when you are looking at a campaign what would you advise I genuinely don't think there is a right or a wrong answer to this for me personally I always send at least one follow up just because I know that um, for my own practices, when I'm, if I look at my email inbox, I bet if I went into my inbox now during the course of this podcast, I've probably got 50 new <laughs> emails. And it's really hard to keep up with your own inbox. And if you then think about what it's like for a journalist getting hundreds yeah. of emails a day, you might just miss one. And I, if the story is really good, I would hate to think of a journalist not having the opportunity to use it just because they missed it by accident. So I would always do at least one. Um, I often do two, but I will leave a longer period of time between the second one and the third one. But that's just me. Um, I like the idea of us maybe using tools like BuzzStream to be more data-driven yeah. in this. But I, I think we're, we also have to recognise that we're talking to human beings yeah. and it just depends on yeah. people's preferences. One thing I would say is that we do keep our BuzzStream lists or whatever outreach platform you're using, we keep those up to date with information about journalists. So if they do specifically come back and say, please don't email me again or please don't email me this much, make sure you've taken note of that and do what they've asked. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had a funny one the other week where a journalist came back to me and said, please don't email me on this email. It's actually my ex-husband's. Oh, ouch. <laughs> but on, it was Gorkana's fault because uh, it was listed <laughs> on Gorkana. I was like, oh, sorry, oh, mate. No. <laughs> <laughs> Awful. So, yeah, that was swiftly updated. <laughs> um, and what? how important, I mean, this is from Saffron as well, um, how important do you think um, the journalist and PR relationship is in, in our discipline. <laughs> we had such a chat about this the I know, other day, didn't we? It's a controversial discussion, that's why I'm and, checking out there. And here's me coming at it from the, the old school approach, I guess. But I, I do think the relationship is important and I think it's important at a very specific stage and that is the point of them spotting your email and opening it. And for me, that's always been one of the biggest hurdles. Like you can be so confident in your campaign and you can know that oh, if you'd only open this email, you'd see how amazing the story is and you'd use it. But if they don't open your email, you'd never even get the chance to pitch it to them. Whereas I think um, if that's if you've got a relationship with them, which can be built in lots of different ways, that I'll come back to, but if you've got a relationship with that journalist, they're just more likely, in my opinion, to open your email. Now, that relationship might come from traditional practices like you might have literally been for a coffee with them and that's fine that's a legit method of building relationship it might simply be that you've worked with them on previous campaigns and they've seen Mm. that you've done a good job I know that when I was working with a client um, a few years ago I pitched an idea to um, this chap from Forbes um, 
RIP Forbes for not giving links, by the way. <laughs> um, but I, I pitched this idea to this guy from Forbes, and I actually spoke to him on the phone originally, which is how old school I am. Um, but he really loved the story, and he used it, and that story got so much engagement on his site, and it got picked up by so many other sites yeah. that he saw the value of the content I provided, which meant that thereafter, every time I had something that I thought was relevant to him, I would either pitch the thing to him or I would pitch the idea to him. But we... Yeah. We had that relationship where I knew that I could I could email him or pick up the phone mm. to him and he'd answer me because he'd seen proof of my work. And I think for me, that's where the relationship is important. And I know there's been kind of talk in um, the industry of, you know, building your own profile on Twitter, making sure that you are a known person. And I remember um, kind of a few years ago, people like Lexi Mills, I think, did a fantastic job of it. I know that any time a journalist saw an email from Lexi Mills land in their inbox, they must have opened it because she was so widely celebrated mm-hmm. as someone who did fantastic work and mm-hmm. great content. Um, so I think if you are recognised in that way, it just makes it easier to get your email opened. That said, I don't think that it's the be-all and end-all. And if you've got a fantastic story, even if no one's ever heard of you, you can still get it placed because the story is what counts. Yeah. Yeah, I think story first and foremost, personally. Um, but I, I agree with you that um, there is a level where relationships are, are still relevant. Um, maybe not as old school as it used to be in sort of more traditional PR disciplines where you'd be going out mm. for like 100 coffees with journalists every day. That seems a bit of a time waste and um, probably too much caffeine to handle. And it, but. It's tough as well because if we think, again, if we take it back to SEO, typically what you're trying to do with digital PR for SEO purposes is to build new links. Mm. Um, so, you know, whilst getting repeat coverage has its value, you're quite often trying to explore different topics or try and reach different audiences that mean it's unlikely you're going to be speaking with the same journalist again and again. Yeah. Um, so what I would kind of advise is to maybe have a select pool of journalists who are quite generalist who are going to be applicable to lots of your campaigns or to lots of your clients if you're agency side um and try and nurture those relationships but i also agree with you that this story is what's going to really resonate providing you can get them to open your email if you put an emoji in it then it's if you fine put an emoji in it, it's all good <laughs> put the word revealed at the beginning it'll be fine um okay our final question then um this is from james or uh, jam who is one of the digital PR specialists in the team. Um, How long should you wait to actually see benefit from a successful digital PR campaign, in your opinion? So, again, it depends, which is generic fluffy answer, but it genuinely does. I think, um, so I had a conversation the other day with a a huge travel brand, and she was saying, um, this lady from this travel brand was saying that they'd worked with an agency for a long time, and they were really struggling to see the tangible benefits of their investment because what they were doing was great, but they were building links to these orphan pages. Mm -hmm. They were getting kind of brand mentions that whilst beneficial for that particular website where their competitors have all got millions of links, they've got millions of links. It's really a drop in the ocean. So you can't expect to see massive changes if you are operating in that kind of a landscape. What I talked to her about, therefore, was picking the battles that we know we can win. So we will work closely with her to understand um, kind of which areas of the site are actually going to benefit from links. And you can do that really easily. Look at what's ranking above you. If the sites that are ranking above you, the differentiating factor is they've got more links Mm. and you can see you've got 50 versus their 100, you've got something quite quantifiable to aim towards there. And it's it's not the, the be all and end all. And obviously there are other factors in play, but I think pick the battles where you know you can make a tangible difference quite quickly and that's where you'll see the quick differences being made if you are working with a client though where you know you still want to get those homepage links you still want to be driving more good quality links to a brand that's already got millions yeah the returns are going to take longer to achieve but as long as you're kind of trending in the right direction that's what's really important and I also think that we can mitigate risk so in terms of a campaign being dead I wrote a post on LinkedIn a while ago, um, which was entitled, Would You Do It If It Went For The Links? And what I meant by that was, should we be it's putting any campaign... Bait. It was well <laughs> um, and it got all of the clicks, so <laughs> shove off. Um, but should we be doing activity that is solely for the purposes of getting links? And in my opinion, no, we shouldn't. So what are the other benefits of having that content, that coverage being achieved, or that piece, that tool, whatever you've created? Mm-hmm. And I know we had a client... Um, that you and I shared a while back who 
every time we created a piece of content, they gave it to their sales team and their sales team put it on LinkedIn and they got loads of engagement and loads of new prospects. So for them, they were like, you know what, even if you get zero links from this, this is a fantastic asset for our team to use. And we've got another client who very recently we launched a tool with and that tool actually hits a really wide range of KPIs, including um, search rankings. So it's hitting a lot of localized search terms and we're already seeing the benefits of that. We're getting the reward of the new traffic, of the new ranking positions, new conversions as well. So again, if, if you guys outreach that tool now and get zero links, it's already met a whole bunch of SEO goals. It's also capturing audience data so we can remarket to them. So I think the, the bigger your investment, the more complex your campaign, the broader your KPIs need to be to justify that bigger investment. Mm. Um, and that's where you can mitigate the risk and hopefully no campaigns have to die. <laughs> <laughs> no campaigns ever have to die. Um, cool. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. We've run over slightly. But Laura, thank you very much um, for joining me on this lovely winter's evening to record this podcast. Um, and we'll be looking for other guests um, to take part. So if you want to get involved, then drop me a line on Twitter. Um, feel free to share, let us know your thoughts and opinions. Um, and if we've insulted you, I definitely want to know because I love a controversial opinion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if, we've, if we've also said something nice that you like as well, you can tell us, but I won't care as much as the insults. Um, thanks very much, guys. And see you next week. That's it from us today. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to Outspeech, the digital PR podcast. If you like listening, then you can find all of our podcasts under the digital PR section of the Impression site. Alternatively, feel free to follow us on Twitter at Impression Talk, and we'll be tweeting all of our podcasts. We're also always looking for guest speakers, so get in touch with me on Twitter at PR to express your interest. We really want to showcase the opinions and voices of everyone in the industry. So it really doesn't matter if you've got five years or five minutes of experience. We want to hear from you.